Hello and welcome to another episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Amelia. And I'm Maddie. We're both clinicians and researchers still, (laughs) as we were last week, at Macquarie University, interested in all things mental health, psychotherapy, and what you can learn from expert clinician researchers in the field. Today's expert clinician researcher in the field is Professor Barnaby Nelson from the University of Melbourne and Origin. Barnaby's area of expertise is psychosis, specifically ultra-high-risk psychosis, which is something that you will learn about. I was going to define it, but I was like, (laughs) let's just wait and listen to what Barnaby has to say. Um, But what we really learn from Barnaby is how common ultra-high-risk psychosis is, how likely it is that the everyday clinician is going to come across it in their practice. Um, He tells us what it looks like and so what we can look out for as clinicians when we are seeing people who may be flagging as ultra-high-risk psychosis. Mm. And that we have more tools than we realize when it comes to addressing these symptoms as well. There's something to be said about the skills that we all kind of have as therapists, those basic foundation skills and also other therapies that we already know, like cognitive behavior therapy, for instance, and how we can adapt that. Exactly. You don't need to do extra years of specialized training Mm. to effectively support somebody who meets criteria for ultra high risk, which Mm -hmm. is a really important takeaway. Certainly, um, maybe a little bit of extra reading. And fortunately, Barnaby does give some great tools and resources that you can use, but it's not um, a a distant goal to to be able to effectively treat and manage uh, these kinds of of clients. So everything Barnaby mentions we'll also put in the show notes so that you can find them out for yourself. And on that note, please enjoy. Welcome onto the show, Barnaby. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Very, very happy to be here. I'll jump straight in. What does psychosis look like? Well, uh, it's a big and important question, and it can probably manifest in lots of different ways, you know, psychosis. In a nutshell, I mean, I guess you'd sort of describe it as some form of disconnection from reality. And people often break that down into different clusters of symptoms. So people talk about the positive symptoms of psychosis, you know, which refers to things like experiencing hallucinations, whether that's, you know, hearing voices um, in your head, you know, or hearing things that aren't present or visual hallucinations, seeing things that aren't present. So that's one big uh, symptom area. Then there's, of course, you know, other positive symptoms like paranoid thinking or, or being, you know, very grandiose. And the negative symptoms of psychosis refer to things like a lack of motivation, uh, lack of energy, lack of drive, disturbances with sort of being able to generate speech properly and, you know, forms of communication, those sorts of things. And then then you've got another area around, you know, disorganization. So some some people with psychosis might become quite disorganized in, in their thinking forms, have difficulty sort of connecting up thoughts in a coherent way and expressing those thoughts coherently or become quite disorganized or odd in their behavior and have difficulties with functioning and dealing with sort of day-to-day functioning, I guess. So that's that's sort of what psychosis looks like in a nutshell. But of course, there are, you know, multiple stages, you know, of psychosis. So if somebody develops psych- psychosis, there can be sort of like a, a pre-onset, you know, stage or what's sometimes referred to as the prodromal phase of psychosis. So you wouldn't actually diagnose somebody at that at that point, but somebody might start experiencing some sort of low-grade, um, unusual experiences, perhaps become increasingly suspicious 
some perceptual disturbances, those sorts of things. And then further down the track, as things progress, you know, it might develop into a first episode of clear psychosis. Mm. Um, and then further down the track, perhaps periods of remission and, and relapse. So it sounds like something, it's not like you flick a switch and it's turned on or turned off. There seems to be kind of a graduated entry into and perhaps even out of psychosis. Yeah. And your research covers what's called ultra-high risk. So walk us through what that is. Where on that kind of graduated way in does ultra-high risk sit and what should we look out for? I mean, there aren't any strict rules to this. I mean, there are multiple pathways into into psychosis for sure. And for some people, it can be reasonably um, abrupt and, and and sudden. It tends not to be, you know, totally out of the blue. But the first psychotic episode sometimes can appear to people as quite an abrupt onset. Mm. But it's true to say that in in most cases there is more of that uh, gradual sort of pre-onset phase, um, and traditionally that was approached in I guess a retrospective type way. So people had developed psychosis, and then they would you know retrospectively report what sort of experiences they had prior to the onset of psychosis, mm -hmm. and generally it would be things like non-specific mental health complaints quite early on, so feelings of anxiety, feelings of depression, feelings of difficulty coping, and then closer to the onset of psychosis, a period of what, what are termed subthreshold psychotic symptoms or attenuated psychotic symptoms would appear, uh, and also problems with functioning as well, and um, some negative symptoms of psychosis as well. And then there would be uh, an onset of first episode of psychosis. So what the ultra high risk approach tries to do is tries to identify people in a prospective way. So mm. people who are at high risk of going on to develop a first episode of psychosis, but you know we don't know whether they will in fact develop a first episode of psychosis or not. So it's like a probabilistic type thing. It's, mm. it's possible that the person might go on, but they may well not. So the way these this ultra-high risk approach, sometimes it's referred to as the at-risk mental state approach or arms okay. approach is another way of referring to it. But in terms of getting into the like the, the details a little, the approach sort of takes the highest age range for psychosis risk into account. So it's generally people aged between sort of 15 to 30 years, or sometimes the criteria use 25 years. But that's sort of, you know, adolescence, young adulthood, mm. um, period of life, you know, is the target population. And it's people who are generally seeking uh, help at clinical services. Uh, so they're recognizing that, you know, something is is going on. They've been, or their GP has, or their family, or, or friends have referred them to clinical services. And the main group coming in, meeting those criteria, is what we call the attenuated psychotic symptoms group. So as I said before, it's things like emerging positive psychotic symptoms, but not to the point where you'd call it a clear diagnosable psychosis. So mm. it would be things like becoming a little bit more paranoid or suspicious in one's thinking or sort of having difficulty forming, you know, coherent thoughts, having a bit of sort of some loose associations between thoughts, becoming a little bit tangential, you know, mm -hmm. in, in one's thinking and speech. Or, you know, and a very common symptom is perceptual disturbances. So not quite as clear as hearing voices in one's head, generally not as clearly defined as that, but it might be more subtle things like maybe 
this sort of inner voice in your head, you know, inner speech when we're thinking to ourselves might become particularly prominent, you know, and loud in one's own head, you know, but you still identify it as your own thoughts. It's not like an external thing coming into yeah, your right. head. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be an example. Or, or other things like unusual feelings on the skin, sort of tactile sensations, stuff like that. Some perceptual anomalies are happening. You know, that's one group of people coming in. Mm-hmm. Another group who would meet these ultra high risk criteria have a family history of psychosis and a first degree relative. And they're also uh, experiencing functional problems. So there's been a decrease in their ability to function at school or in relationships, study and so or work and so on. Or they have a schizotypal personality disorder themselves. So that sort of group is thought of as as having sort of what we call um, a tray vulnerability, you know, to psychosis due to perhaps genetic factors, you know, because of the family history or because of this sort of personality, you know, disorder of schizotypal personality in combination Mm -hmm. with having difficulties functioning. And then the the third group, the third and final group that is sort of referred to as the ultra high risk cohort, uh, what we call the the blips group, and what that stands for is that yeah, it's it's sort of stands for brief, limited, intermittent, psychotic symptoms. So Mm -hmm. this is you know basically people who have experienced full threshold, clear psychotic symptoms, but for a very brief period of time, you know, hence the sort of blip uh-huh. acronym, a little oh, blip of psychotic works symptoms. quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of a, it's an easy acronym to remember. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these are people who might have had clear periods of paranoia or voices, for example, but those symptoms have resolved of their own accord without any treatment. Mm-hmm. And they've been there perhaps for less than a week. And uh, the person might have had multiple episodes like that, but very short little episodes. And I guess the thinking is, okay, the person's already experienced some psychotic symptoms. There's perhaps an increased likelihood that over time, the person will go on and develop a more sustained psychotic episodes. They might be at risk, you know, for those reasons. So those that's the at-risk mental state approach um, mm. in a nutshell, or the, or the ultra-high risk approach. In other places around the world, sometimes it's referred to as the clinical high risk or the mm-hmm. CHR approach. You know, it's basically referring to the same, the same group of, of young people. And those same three constellations right. of characteristics. Getting my exactly. head around the blips and the arms. <laughs> um, yes. It yeah. strikes me when hearing you within those three categories, when you talk about some of the signs to look out for, that some of them could be misunderstood or... or They're not specific. Yeah, or kind of mistaken mm-hmm. for other other disorders. So, for example, mm-hmm. feeling paranoid might be mistaken for having trust issues within a formulation of someone who maybe hasn't necessarily been able to form trusting relationships. Mm-hmm. There was another one as well you said that made me think about something that I have to try and remember. The depression one? Yeah, withdrawal, like functional decline as well. You know, that's obviously something that we'd see across a lot of disorders. How often do you guess it's missed and is it commonly mistaken for another kind of disorder well that's yeah that's a really important point and can't agree more you know with the idea that certainly i mean it overlaps with other sort of syndromes and and disorders for sure there's uh, you know it's not its own sort of distinct syndrome or, mm. or, or category if you like there's definitely overlap going on and i guess the approach that we've tended to take in this area is to be you know sort of agnostic you know with regards to what's going on 
you know, diagnostically or, or etiologically, you know, this person. So we're simply sort of describing those those symptoms. So having a very phenomenological approach. These are the sort of symptoms going on. Perhaps they're part of, you know, another disorder or another problem if we sort of formulate clinically what's, you know, how we understand those symptoms. But we'll sort of identify those the person as meeting ultra high risk criteria, even if we think those sort of symptoms or experiences are due to, let's say, perhaps interpersonal style or, or background of trauma or mm-hmm. problematic relationships or, you know, those sorts of things would still have an inclusive approach and, you know, really try and um, track the symptoms over time, keep them on the on the clinical map, if you like, you know, when we're working with the person therapeutically. So it may well be that we formulate those symptoms as being due to a whole range of other things, such as, you know, as you described, you know, trauma or interpersonal type things, um, and incorporate that into the treatment approach and see if see if the symptoms resolve, you know, over time, they may well, but they may well not, mm. you know, and it may well be that, you know, we're seeing the early signs of a psychotic disorder emerging, but it's just, it's very hard to predict. I mean, there's no reliable way of sort of doing that yet. So I think it's worth sort of being very inclusive in the in the approach, you know, for the, for the time being. That's so interesting. It's, it's kind of capturing yeah. it just in case because then you've got an eye on it rather than dismissing it as something that's not relevant and then you might not capture it. Because that's to, right. Yeah, wanting to have a few false positives flag so that you don't miss any false negatives. Hmm. Yes, yes. I think I think that's right. I think that's exactly the approach that, that we take. So to be quite inclusive. And I suppose a principle that's worth keeping in mind is because somebody might be experiencing a, an isolated psychotic symptom or mm. a subthreshold psychotic symptom, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a psychotic disorder present or is going to evolve. You know, I mean, it's sort of quite um, widely recognized now that people in the general population or people with non-psychotic disorders, you know, will also experience psychotic-like symptoms or the an isolated psychotic symptom, but it doesn't necessarily mean a psychotic disorder is evolving. So, yeah, having just recognizing something when it's present and trying one's best to sort of stay reasonably open-minded to which direction it might go in and have a sort of a working clinical formulation that perhaps might incorporate, you know, that psychotic symptom and be open to changing that formulation over time, I think is mm-hmm. is what we've learned is the way to go. Because mm-hmm. a trap we can fall into clinically, I think, is to be too, I mean, it's not necessarily dismissive, but being too sort of overly explanatory you know overly confident of our (laughs) overly confident of our explanation of why uh, something that appears like a psychotic symptom might be present due Mm. to sort of you know psychosocial issues or or developmental background or those sorts of things whereas it's it's very hard to know if that's the case or not we love to put a reason on everything like this is why this has happened this is why this has happened and we tend yes. to have our biases, don't we? What we've encountered ourselves clinically or seen recently, we, we tend to see more of that in somebody than, than, say, a colleague who's seen a different kind of presentation more frequently than ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and we have a particular lens through which we sort of exactly, approach things off of Through which we answer. see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep. So one thing um, I'm really interested to know, uh, and it may be a limitation of our current knowledge, but if you were to, to say, identify a cohort of people who meet the criteria for ultra high risk according to any of those criteria you have said, mm-hmm. what's your estimation as the, of the proportion of those people who will then go on to experience psychosis itself? 
It seems to be at about the 20% mark thereabouts at the moment, sort of, uh, you know, meta-analytic evidence sort of indicates it's around that area. And that's despite receiving some form of, of treatment, you know, so that's not like a, a natural cause of disorder, okay. if you like. That's people who have, you know, received uh, psychotherapies or medications, even combinations of medications. And it seems as though about two in 10, you know, will go on and develop a psychotic episode in the following year or so. And then it might increase slightly. So 20, 25% over the coming two to three years. And what um, about the natural course? So I guess that answering the natural course question helps us to figure out, is intervention preventing some of those people going from ultra-risk to psychosis? Well, that's sort of like the, the million-dollar question yeah. at the moment <laughs> in the field. Is because, because, I mean, in a sense, the field has been very successful because it's a lot of services have now been set up to provide treatment, you know, for young people meeting these criteria, which is absolutely fantastic because, you know, we have to keep in mind that, People meeting these criteria will generally, like 80% actually, have comorbid, you know, disorders going on. So right. what I mean by that is that we come in with, you know, diagnosable, you know, DSM, you know, diagnosis of depression, anxiety, personality disorders and substance use disorders and so on, which will need treatment in their own right, mm. you know. So, you know, and sometimes the UHR-related symptoms are, you know, a main cause of distress um, and wanting to be focused on um, by the client. And sometimes it's those other disorders that will be the main source of distress or a combination of the two. What I'm saying is that a lot of people are now receiving UHR, people are receiving treatment, but that means it's quite difficult to establish a natural course of disorder yeah. because everyone's, you know, receiving we a form of treatment. We don't take a step back, do we? <laughs> we don't in- yeah, well, include that- a no treatment control group in this situation. No. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then you've got, of course, ethical, you exactly. know, problems with doing that sort yeah. of thing now that there is good evidence there. So we recently published a sort of a review paper in, in schizophrenia research, I think, which found that specific intervention approaches, things like psychotherapies, like cognitive behavior therapy, um, you know, family interventions, and also the whole range of different types of uh, medication type intervention mm. trials that have been conducted and nutritional supplements like omega-3s and antipsychotics and those sorts of things. If you combine them all together, they are useful in reducing that transition rate. You know, we talked about before the onset of full threshold psychosis, you know, and also reducing attenuated psychotic symptoms. So how severe those attenuated psychotic symptoms are compared to, I guess, the comparison group, which is generally like, you know, needs-based interventional supportive therapy, which mm-hmm. is still, you know, a form of treatment for sure, but it's more of a, I guess, a lighter touch, a lower grade, you know, form of treatment, you know. That's encouraging. So that ind- Yeah, exactly. I mean, that indicates that we can, you know, make a difference for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And what what comes through quite clearly in the in the studies is earlier in the course of the symptoms, the person receives treatment, the better the outcome over longer term. Even when you follow people up, you know, over ten years or so, there are better clinical outcomes if they've been provided with with treatment earlier in the course of their symptoms. So that's that's pretty clear um, in the data so far. Yeah, yeah, that really highlights the importance of intervening as early as possible. Yeah. I'm wondering, you mentioned quite a lot of treatment approaches. Out of all of them and the ones that you reviewed, was there one that stood out to be the most effective or the one that, yeah, you would recommend for people in terms of early intervention? At this stage, it does appear to be the psychotherapies. They've definitely got more evidence, you know, behind them than other approaches that have been trialed, medication-based approaches. Sorry, That's things great like for us med- psychologists. 
Yes, that's right. That's right. That fits in. And I guess the main intervention that's been trials psychotherapy-wise has been CBT. So, you know, there is partly that issue of maybe there's the strongest evidence for CBT simply because it's the, the one that's been yeah, trialed the most. I mean, that is a possibility. But in terms of just, yeah, looking at the evidence, there's the strongest evidence for CBT at this stage. And you've also got considerations of cost-benefit ratio, those sorts of things. So there was, you know, some indication in some studies that antipsychotic medications might be useful in the UHR phase, not mm. to a sort of statistically significant degree, but it might have been sort of limited by small samples and that sort of thing. But then you've got the downside of side effects, you know, associated with those, you know, weight gain, mm. metabolic problems, mm. the sort of standard side effects of antipsychotics. So you've got to balance those things out. And it seems as though we're getting, you know, the best clinical outcomes are coming from psychotherapy such as CBT at the moment. So that's that's the thing to try for sure. We're looking at at the moment in origin is what we're calling a SMART trial, which is basically rather than just comparing one intervention to another, you sort of basically do a sequence, you know, a sequence of interventions. So you sort of see step one, whether the person responds to a lower grade intervention, like general supportive counseling, supportive therapy. And then if the person doesn't respond, like the symptoms are still pretty much present Mm -hmm. you up the ante and you graduate Mm. to a more perhaps intensive form of therapy in our case it was cbt and then again you know if the person doesn't respond to that then you move on to step three which would be in our case it was an antidepressant medication and then further down the track an antipsychotic medication so those sorts of it's almost like a filtering type approach you're filtering people through the various therapies starting with the gentler softest type approach fewer side effects and so on Mm -hmm. and seeing you know the people who don't respond to that will graduate to more intensive forms of treatment. So those sorts of designs is an interesting way forward for this group, I think. You know? oh, I just love to see that kind of approach throughout our whole mental health care mm. system. <laughs> I think we're working yeah. toward it. Yes. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, And then, of course, you've got digital therapies that come into the mix there as well, what yeah. can be achieved online and remotely. Exactly. Yeah. Are there any digital therapies for psychosis out of interest? There are. I mean, certainly there's sort of a colleague at Origin, Mario Alvarez, has been pursuing what they call the MOST approach, which is called moderated online social therapy, oh. which is basically getting people together, you know, clinical groups. We're doing one at the moment in the ultra high risk group where there's an online platform, you know, where peers can comment on each other's experiences and give advice. And it's sort of moderated by professionals, you mm. know, and there are various sort of therapeutic steps that, that the person can go through online. So sort of, for example, mindfulness type strategies cognitive diffusion, cognitive challenging type strategies. So we're trialing that at the moment in the ultra high risk group, but there are some sort of similar type approaches for people with diagnosed psychotic disorders as well. Yeah, they do exist. There was one, there's one recently published called um, Slow Mo. If you look <laughs> up Slow Mo in JAMA Psychiatry, it's sort oh, of, wow. I think Philip Garrity was the first author and they were looking at things like pausing and, 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 and slowing down, you know, with the aid of sort of digital things like apps on the phone and that sort of thing to challenge one's delusional thinking in the okay. situation, you know, mm. those sorts of approaches are very interesting. The yeah. field love their acronyms as well, <laughs> collecting yes. a lot as we go along. <laughs> That's right. So for, for a kind of an everyday, therapist who in private practice is unlikely to come across much psychosis but who's familiar with CBT for example what does it look like when you are delivering CBT for people in this cohort what are the key differences 
I don't think the differences are that major. I think that's possibly one of the misconceptions in the area, mm. you know, that doing CBT for psychosis is a totally different kettle Very of fish. Specialized, you know? yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, there are, you know, particular things to look out for. But I mean, the general principles, I think, are the same. And if you look back to the early days of CBT, I mean, Beck, you know, Aaron Beck and so on, I mean, their early reports about the utility of CBT was around, was, was with psychotic patients. I mean, one really? of Beck's first case reports was doing CBT for a patient with, of his with schizophrenia. So mm. it's certainly been a concept that's been around for a long time, certainly mapping out, you know, having a good description of the type of symptoms going on, you know, developing a formulation, you know, cognitively informed formulation is is the same sort of approach you'd take with CBT for psychosis, both in terms of, I guess, more general underlying beliefs that might be, you know, contributing to to the symptoms, you know, examples might be that the world is trying to persecute me, or I'm being persecuted in various ways, or that I might be a particularly important or significant person, for example, as a yeah. you know, as an as another way, you know, underlying belief that might be targeted. And of course, there are scales and instruments that exist in the field to help assess these sorts of things. Yeah. You know, in the same way that there might be for schema therapy and those sorts of things, different questionnaires that people can complete, or of course, it can be assessed in in the course of sessions. And then and again, more and then more detailed, sort of finer grained ways of understanding symptoms, like what triggers exist for symptoms, what contexts do they tend to occur in. So really mapping these things out, like when the person hears voices, does it tend to be when they're overwhelmed by sensory stimuli, you know, for example, in a sort of shopping center type scenario, you know, or does it tend to be more when the person's alone and isolated, you know, in the bedroom at home, those sorts of things. So it's sort of what we call like a functional analysis of psychotic symptoms, really mapping it out step by step. And then, you know, as you do with anxiety disorders, you know, and depression and so on, use the whole range of cognitive and behavioral strategies, cognitive challenging, you know, whether that happens in session through Socratic dialogue Mm. or whether that's, you know, something that's done in between sessions through little sort of reminder systems and things like that. I mean, I often use that with clients, you know, little reminder systems and sort of self-talk type things on the person's phone and things Mm. like that to really challenge an in vivo, you know, an experience of symptoms cognitively, and also perhaps more of those general beliefs that might be underlying symptoms in the first place. And then, and also the use of behavioral strategies. So, I mean, things like exposure hierarchies that you'd use, of course, classically with anxiety disorders are also very useful with psychotic symptoms. So step-by-step being exposed to situations that tend to trigger psychotic symptoms, such as voices, going through those step-by-step, that's, you know, something that's used a lot in, in the psychosis area you know, structuring behavioral experiments and tasks that way, behavioral experiments that might challenge or test out a particularly negative expectation, an outcome that the person expects will occur if they do X, Y, and Z to actually actively test that out with the person is something that we, you know, often do a lot as well. Yeah. So, I mean, there's nothing terribly different, I don't think, about CBT for psychosis compared to the other approaches. All the same tools. Yeah, it sounds like the bones of CBT are the same, regardless of whether it's for depression or anxiety or for psychotic symptoms. What I find really interesting is Mm. that some CBT treatments lean more heavily into the behavioral side of things, like for specific phobias, for instance, exposure is a really big part of it, regardless of necessarily the cognition that underlies the exposure. Whereas for psychosis, I imagine there would be more value for clinicians in focusing in, you know, what is that person's interpretation of what that psychotic symptom means? 
I am thinking about OCD where it's not necessarily the intrusion, but it's the person's response to the intrusion uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is a maintaining factor of OCD. Does a similar thing happen for psychosis? It's hard to address that question with in a very general sense because mm. I think there is and this is where the importance of individual formulation really comes in, I think. I think, you know, rather than saying it's we always need to target the appraisal, for example, to follow the OCD type lines rather than the intrusion itself, you know, yeah. that's that can certainly be the case, you know, for many people, but not for everybody. So I think it's hard to have blanket rules as as with any form of therapy, really, you know, about these sort of things. But I think it's equally the case with psychosis. So for some clients, it would certainly be a matter of, okay, taking quite a normalizing type approach to many unusual experiences and, and to present people with the data, you know, that almost 10% of the general population will experience these unusual experiences. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're losing your mind, you know, or that you're experiencing something that nobody else experiences. So this very normalizing type of approach, mm. perhaps the problem comes in with how you're responding to that. Yes. Perhaps it's making you particularly concerned about your mental health, or particularly anxious, or maybe it's making you avoid various situations or cognitions, if you like, and developing ways of, of changing around that appraisal, you know, that is certainly something we do a lot with psychotic symptoms. But then for other people, it might be that the equivalent of the intrusion, the actual experience itself is regular, prominent, intense, and distressing. So regular sort of perceptual anomalies or things like that. So then in some in those sort of situations, it might become less a matter of, of course, it's everything's interlinked, but it might be a little bit less a matter of addressing the appraisal or the response to those things and actually trying to brainstorm ways or situations that might be helpful in bringing down this sort of intense sensory experience, for example, that the person's having, the actual intrusion aspect of it, if you like, whether that's a sensory or a sort of cognitive type thing. So, you know, I think there has to be flexibility there. And also thinking about the different symptom areas is important too, because perhaps what we were talking about a lot now is around the positive Positive, symptoms of psychosis, the delusions and hallucination. But of course, you know, the negative symptoms can be particularly problematic, particularly long-term and have severe impact on the person's functioning, ability to get jobs, et cetera, et cetera, have relationships, things like behavioral activation and sort Mm. of a structured approach to daily activities and those sorts of things can be really useful from that negative symptom point of view as well, you know. And, you know, it is separating that from depression is, of course, a really big challenge as well, particularly in the early stages of psychotic disorders. And both might be present. I mean, the person might be having the negative psychotic symptoms and, and depression. So uh, targeting both at the same time with a very similar approach can be useful. Can be helpful. Yeah. Really strikes me hearing you describe that, that really many competent CBT clinicians could quite easily translate their skill set into this area and I actually now caught myself in that question it's probably a symptom of this protocols for disorders potential problem that we have right now where there's a protocol for any disorder with any comorbidity in any population and we forget that actually all these skills are really transferable and it's often about the formulation and the kinds of symptoms you see presented which is what you've explained really clearly for us there which is a nice reminder for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah well so much exists across the different disorders doesn't it and and there's a lot of work in the sort of transdiagnostic area at the moment as well if you think if you look at the literature there you know there's really strong evidence for very similar therapeutic approaches being useful across the different disorders. Perhaps mm. there are similar difficulties going on, you know, across different symptom clusters, if you like. You know. mm, definitely. Mm. If you were to summarize all the very handy info that you've just given us, 
what would be the main takeaway you'd like clinicians? I've done it again. To take away from this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yep. Probably, I think the point that we made at some point, at some stage, that these thing, these sort of symptoms are not that uncommon. I think it's worth keeping that in mind. You know that um, there can be a bit of a, an assumption that these are very uncommon experiences, and you won't often encounter them in clinical practice, say in, in private practice, and so on. But that's not really the case. Mm. I mean. Just to illustrate, in the headspace services, you know, across Australia at the moment, the youth mental health services, you know, we've been finding that about 35% of young people coming into those clinics will meet ultra high risk criteria, even though that might not be the reason for referral at all. And it's only picked Mm. up on the the time. So that's reasonably common that these attenuated psychotic symptoms are present. And likewise, in the general population, these things happen as well, and they might not be associated with lots of distress or help seeking. So keeping that in mind, often these things are more present than we think is important. I guess another point, clinical sort of takeaway time point, would be what we said before about the percentage will go on and sort of develop a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, schizophreniform disorder, and so on. It's Perhaps not that high if we think about that 20 to you know 25% rate I was talking about, but it seems to be that these attenuated psychotic symptoms are a marker or a predictor of poor outcome transdiagnostically defined. So even if the person doesn't go on and develop a psychotic disorder, they're a sort of a quite a strong predictor of not doing that well with a whole range of clinical indices, whether it be anxiety levels, depression, eating disorders, Mm. substance use, a whole range of things. So, you know, we might think, I don't really think the person's at risk of psychosis, but still it might be useful to assess and and keep these attenuated psychotic symptoms on the radar because they might predict poor treatment response and sort of risk of a whole range of things Mm. further down the track. So I think it's worth having that broader view in mind. And I suppose the other thing is that like we were talking about with CBT for psychosis, that there are effective treatments, you know, that we can work with these symptoms. It doesn't, you know, there can still be this misconception of, okay, it's sort of medication or nothing. And yeah. if medication works, that's great. And, you know, just have to find the right one and it's trial and error until we find the right one. But I mean, particularly in the early stages of these disorders, there's strong evidence for CBT and for other psychotherapies. And there isn't that much mystery to using those approaches with this group of symptoms. There's a, in fact, on my desk right here, I could I could see a book that's incredibly useful as a sort of for clinicians to read. It's called um, "Think You're Crazy, Think Again." It's by Tony Morrison and colleagues, and that's just a really useful sort of manual of sort of CBT for this group. You know, with sheets that can be used and uh, CBT strategies and little tables and all that sort of stuff. Oh, um, yeah. So that's those the quick <laughs> takeaways. Yeah, lots of great takeaways. I think I might be answering your question. Mm. with a thought before I ask you the next one, but I'll do it anyway. (laughs) It strikes me that there might be a bit of a lag in terms of broad clinician understanding about psychosis and even Mm. ultra-high risk around, Mm. well, it's really not a domain for psychotherapists, it's medication, and the psychotherapy tools we have aren't ineffective. It's really a biological Uh disorder. Is that a common misconception? And if not, what is one common misconception you do see in the field? See what I've done? <laughs> well I feel played. As though yeah, I feel, I feel as though I'm being led down a path that's already <laughs> there. You know? so, so, but I, but I, I, yeah, it is. Look, 
I mean, I think that is that's a really, I mean, it's a bit of a can of worms, I think, that whole area. But, I mean, there is so much still unknown. Mm. I think we have to be very clear. And I'm very transparent with clients in the clinical situation, you know, about this sort of stuff. We still don't know the cause of psychosis. We still mm. don't know the contribution of biological and psychosocial factors. I mean, we know certain things. We know certain risk factors are present. There are um, social environmental or the you know, type risk factors, certainly trauma, certainly deprivation, you know, minority status, a sense of social exclusion, you know, these things, substance use, of course, can contribute. But the interaction, the complex interaction between mm. those things and biological and genetic factors is still sort of very much being teased apart mm. and understood. So I think until it's a lot clearer, I mean, we just have to work with, with what we know, which is that both biological and psychosocial and social factors are contributing to, to these things over time. And certainly let's not think of it as simply one or the other. You know, yeah. I think it's pretty clear now that the view that this is purely a, a very brain-based biological type disorder and we just need to think in terms of medications is wrong. I think that's pretty clear. People still need to work out the exact, you know, contribution of these various factors, but working psychologically with the person can seem to make a massive difference. And just because one one type of therapeutic approach doesn't mean that it's not influencing things on multiple levels. What I mean by that is that you might take a, a psychotherapeutic approach that ends up having an impact on biological variables. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so you can come up with better ways of managing anxiety, stress, for example, exactly. which will have a flow-on effect to neurochemistry, you know, mm -hmm. to, to the modulation of neurotransmitters in the brain. We know things can work that way. So there's definitely a lot of scope for psychologists, yeah, you know, words. to be working and yeah. working in this field for sure. And of yeah, course, definitely. you know, the, the ideal approach seems to be the integrated sort of thing where you have a team-based approach where you have, you know, medication type input as well as comprehensive psychosocial interventions. Mm. Yeah. Even as someone who's worked with people experiencing psychotic symptoms in the past in that team and and more generally there's still this idea that medication is king and it just sounds like that's not really that's not the case maybe you know 10 20 years down the track for someone who's experiencing psychotic symptoms but definitely not for this group where early intervention can have a big impact and change the trajectory of of what their life might look like absolutely yep and I certainly don't mean to downgrade the role of medication. Of course, it is it is key, but I mean, particularly in the the pre onset period, it doesn't seem it's a staging type idea. Perhaps mm. it is of less relevance right at that point. We still need to figure out what the best type of medications might be. But in the meantime, we know that the psychosocial stuff makes a big impact. So you know, let's sort of concentrate on that for the time being. I think, um, and I, I think perhaps the stigma one. I'll just mention that very quickly. You know, that that can be a bit of a misconception. Particularly the sort of self-stigma type stuff that it'll be um, very stigmatizing to the young person, you know, for them to talk about these sorts of symptoms or to be asked about them, you know. I think that's rarely the case. I mean, more often we get the feedback, you know, from people that there was a relief to talk about these things and to be asked about these experiences, mm. particularly when it's balanced with the message that, you know, we don't necessarily mean you have a poor prognosis or that nothing can be done. You know, it's just we're trying to understand what's going on for you. Mm. And it's worth being very, you know, open and assessing everything, you know, mm -hmm. and sharing things that the person might not have shared with other people previously because that is often the case that the person's been 
avoidant or reluctant for various reasons to talk about these experiences with family members or friends, you know, but the clinical situation is an opportunity for them to do that. So I think that's the priority rather than being concerned about avoiding the issue or sort of stigma. We see similar things, you know, in the area, say suicidal, you know, risk or trauma, you know, to stay away from asking about those things because somehow it might trigger episodes or make things worse. I think that's rarely the case and there's good evidence to support that. And it's the same sort of principle in psychosis, better to sort of understand these things than to sort of sweep it under the carpet. That ties in really nicely with your idea that it's important clinicians understand how how common and, and normal these things are. So hopefully there's a nice interaction of people who maybe do want to feel the relief and, and share that information with someone that the clinician on the receiving end answers that with curiosity and interest and, and a sense that this is really something that we do see quite commonly. It's not the end of the world and it doesn't mean that you're a particularly marginalized person who's going to go crazy. Yeah, yeah. And to wrap up, This is my favourite question. What is one research question you would like to see answered? Oh, okay. Well, it's difficult to limit it to one because that's why I'm spending a lot of my time. I know, right? Neurofeedback actually is something that's really sparked my interest recently. Uh, So that's that idea of actually being able to show somebody what's going on. I mean, this gets at our sort of brain versus mind sort of discussion earlier, but Mm. to show what's going on on a neural level in real time to the person and then being able to control that in some way to sort of reduce perhaps activity in certain neural circuits in the brain or or areas of the brain. And there have been some studies already indicating that that's possible to do. So we, you know, we're exploring that at the moment in combination with things like virtual reality and and working with your therapist at the same time. So these are quite sort of new mm. um, integrated approach that, that combines, you know, what's happening in the CBT area with sort of technology, you know, virtual reality with brain-based approaches like neurofeedback. So I think mm. there's a lot of potential there to link these things together. So can we be a bit creative and, and draw on the research in the area to help come up with new treatments that might be very engaging? And they might ideally be more effective than the existing treatment. I think other things is mechanisms, you know, like we we're saying before, we still don't understand how these symptoms develop and across yeah. the different levels. Like, I mean, how do some of the biological or the neural type variables that have been identified, how do those things translate into symptoms over time? Like, I mean, actually linking those things up from a mechanism point of view is still very unclear, you know, answering that sort of stuff is... A challenge. Um, <laughs> Such an understatement. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> There's a lot to be to done watch. there. Yeah. That's right. And and the, the final thing I'd probably say is the subtypes. I think there are probably lots more different types of psychosis and sort of understanding those distinctions more is a big thing for the field to get its teeth stuck into as well. Yeah. Wow. My goodness, there's so much to do. This is why yeah. I love this question because there's always more than one question that people come back with. I know. I'm like, oh, you have a laundry list yes. of things to get through. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, we better waste no more of your time so you can go <laughs> off and answer all of these interesting questions or try and get the resources to do so. It's been so interesting and fascinating to hear from you in terms of your wisdom clinically and in the research. I think that there's a lot of takeaways and a lot of new things people will learn listening to this episode. So thanks so much for coming on, Barnaby. No worries at all. Thank, Thank you for you all the so questions much. and the interest. And no, it's been been fun and always happy to do, good, do it again at some stage if, if oh, I'd like to. So, yeah. Please. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Science of Therapy. 
We hope you found it interesting and useful and, you know, had a few little tidbits or fun facts you can use. It was jam-packed. I know, right? A lot of science and a lot of therapy for one episode. <laughs> If you're still listening, congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, head over to the website, scienceoftherapy.com. You can find out more about Barnaby and about us and access past episodes. You can also claim CPD. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, write a review. That's Five stars. <laughs> um, and otherwise, we'll, we'll catch, catch you next time. That's exactly right. <laughs>